Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome, Black. Black like I never left. Black again. Um, it's your host, the one and only Carl Anthony Payne. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest joins us. He is a retired special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigations, where he completed 22 and a half years of dedicated service in the FBI. He served as a hostage negotiator, a civil rights expert. He was a member of the Bureau's national recruitment team and was a team leader of the FBI's Elite Special Operations Group. Without further ado, please welcome Frank Burton Jr. Welcome to the show, Doc. Thank you for having me, Carl. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. And as I said, I will not be hostile towards you uh, for any of our previous conversation at all with regards to what I know to be football and what you know to be just watching guys running around with the ball. Um yeah. So, we, we, but but I ain't gonna mess with you, man. You don't want no smoke. I ain't even gonna mess with you <laughs> unless you were out there playing the game. I ain't even gonna mess with you. Well, you know what? I did play when I was younger. I played. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, okay. I played. Like, like if I wasn't doing what I do now, that's exactly probably what I'd be doing. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. And I won't listen. I won't hold it against you either, because I know from doing FBI research that you are a Howard Bison. I'm in the MEAC too, baby. Dell State. Hey, so I need hey, hey, I need hey, mess hey, with you hey, right hey. That's it then. That's it. We, 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 we bonded. We good. We good. There you go. There you go. We good. And I, you know, you know what, I, you know what I enjoy about what, you, what, what our little tete a tete just now was that that's what, that's what more brothers need to be able to do. Be able to disagree or agree to disagree on something and, 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 and have a dialogue, have a conversation, you know, voice our opinions, voice our viewpoints and, and still, you know, I think that if, if we have a common goal, if we have a common interest, at the yes, end sir. of the day, and you know, you're, you know, we can both be passionate about whatever our opinion is, or passionate about the thing that we're talking about. Um, but I think the mistake is that people make is thinking that that their way is the only way. Come on, sir. Come on. That Come that on. their way is the only way, without being open to the possibilities of another solution because at the end of the day if we both want to come to the same solution and the same agreement i think i think that's what more more people need to be able to do is to carl i said this way i'm an illustrative person and there's a picture of an indian chief and somebody's complaining about the left wing and the right wing and the indian chief said yo we both part of the same bird bro so what we what you talking about left wing and right wing we both part of the same bird so let's get it cracking. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, took time out of your schedule. I know that um, you're a busy man and I, I'm not going to take up too much of your time today, but I, I'd like to jump right into a couple of things uh, just to get a couple of things out of the way. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. Yeah, I'm originally from Chester, Pennsylvania, born and raised. Uh, Chester, Pennsylvania is a little bit south of Philadelphia. If people have been in the news the last 10 years, they know that Chester was one of the worst uh, 10 cities in America. It's inundated with crime and drugs. My parents wanted a better life for me and my sister. So at six years old, we moved a little bit south down to Wilmington. <laughs> is that better? <laughs> well, we moved down to Wilmington, Delaware, and that's where I grew up. Wilmington, Delaware. I, I, I'm familiar with that place because that's where most people from New York go and hide. That yes, is sir. where if you're on the run, <laughs> uh -huh. 
<laughs> got, so one be- to- got one better for you. Got one better for you. They're all coming down to Bear, Delaware, and Middletown. That's where they all are. A lot of them are in my development right now. So you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm speaking exactly. to those cats out there who I grew up with and other cats who was just like, I need to get out. It's hot. The heat is on. Yeah, yeah. We're going yeah. to Wilmington. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> um, that, that's funny. I, I joke about it, but it's like the, it was their own witness relocation <laughs> program. <Yeah. laughs> All right. So, so what? What were your interests coming up? Tell me, like, how? Basically, was there an incident? Right? What was your interactions with law enforcement uh, coming up? And was there either a, a significant incident or something that may have? pushed you or a series of events, right, right. that led to you wanting to uh, join the department? So first off, my interest growing up was sports. Everything was sports. I started playing baseball when I was younger. Then I went into basketball and then I went and went into football. And that's all I did from the time I was six years old to middle school to high school. By the time I got into high school, I played football, basketball and baseball. And I was all state and a couple of those, and I was a star quarterback and the running back and whatever. But law enforcement, you know, Wilmington, I grew up in the Philadelphia is not too far from us. So we hung in Philly as well. But I'm coming up in a time where Frank Rizzo was the mayor. And Rizzo was a dirty cat, man, with dirty officers. And no matter, you went up there, man, you was going to get harassed. You was going to get the business no matter what. So that was in the back of my mind. Had interactions with Highway Patrol a lot. But the interaction that really did it for me was I was a senior in high school. I was a star quarterback. We were coming from the north side, going to an all-white football game, Salesiana, which is a powerhouse in Delaware. It's about eight brothers walking down one of the main thoroughfare, Vandiver Avenue, going down over to where Salesianum is. We get to a Concord Pike, which is a main road, and all of a sudden the jump, the vice squad jumps out with like, I don't know, man, 15, 20 cars. Put us on the ground, say, hey, get on the ground. I got a foot to my head. I got a shotgun to my head. And all of a sudden, don't move, you know, whatever, whatever. And we're just sitting there for about 20 minutes. Now, Carl, the embarrassing thing is I'm sitting there face down to the ground, at this main thoroughfare where everybody can see me. I'm the star quarterback of this team in Delaware. I ain't never been in trouble a day in my life, but people are riding by and they see me. And so they're, they're riding by, nothing gets said. So about 20, 25 minutes later, the officer come over and say, Yo, you can go. That was it. You can go. What do you mean you can, we can go? Well, y'all look like y'all matched the description of someone that called in that said somebody robbed an apartment. We go down to the game, Carl. Enjoy the game, scared to death. We don't, oh man, I'm 16, 17 years old. We go down to the game. I come back, come in the house, and my mom said, what the hell you do? What, what you been doing? I said, what you talking about, mom? They saw you with your face down to the ground. With the, I said, mom, listen, I ain't never been in trouble a day in my life. I ain't never been arrested. I ain't never had nothing. That changed my whole perspective on law enforcement. So I never wanted to be in law enforcement, and I definitely never wanted to go to military. My goal and my dream was to go to the pros. Let me ask you, so how did you feel in that moment when you were face down on the ground and when they were treating you that way, when you had, you know, when they had their foot on you and a gun pointed to your head? I felt like my dignity was taken and I felt like I couldn't do anything. Just like we were talking about George Floyd, I couldn't do anything because there's a whole bunch of cops out there. I got a shotgun trained to my head. I got a foot on my on my on my head as well. And I don't know what I don't. I didn't even see where they came from. They just all of a sudden, boom, they just jumped out. You know, I'm scared to death. That's how I felt. I felt scared. My heart was pounding. Right. Did you think you that 
this could be it. Like if you if you made a wrong move, that you could. Oh, you're doing all right, and that this this is back in 1978, and way before all of this. Yeah, I felt like that was going to be it if I if I move wrong. And this was before we were teaching kids what to do and how to do it. So yeah, I was terrified. I was terrified. Now, do you have kids? I have four. Four. Uh, what what are the, what are the ages and the gender? So my oldest boy is 38. My daughter's 28. And my two young sons are college football players, 24 and 23. How old were you, or should I say, were you in the department when you had your first son? Uh, I had my first son in college, so he was he was already born before I went to I, Europe. Okay. Now, growing up in Delaware and experiencing the things that you've experienced, you know, it's interesting. I've had conversations where it's like you can say the talk to white people, mm. and white people the talk they would think means, you know, having a conversation with their children about sex, about the birds and the bees. But yeah. in black households, the talk means, especially when you have young black men or, or you know, uh, sons, the talk is really one of, of making sure they come home alive. It, it, I mean, am I correct in saying this? Or was this a part of your situation? Because I know Coming up from from where we come from, that that was like a thing. The talk was not about sex. <laughs> it was about, hey, look, this is how you handle situations if you ever get into a situation with an officer. And it's, right. that's like even more prevalent today. Yes, yes, and you're absolutely right. The talk is is paramount in our in our communities. Carl, my 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 one son who plays for the University of Delaware is six foot two, two hundred eighty five pounds with dreadlocks. If you see him, he's scared. He's a beast. My other son is six foot one that plays. He's six foot one, 200 pounds and all color, colors his hair, all different kind of ways. Now I have the talk with them and, 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 and I've heard a lot of your programs. I have the talk with them because while I was on the force in the bureau, I was getting profiled. While I was in the bureau, uh, it, to this day, I'm 58 years old. I will go to a hot dude. I chase world terrorists for a living. I will go to a high end uh, department store, walk around for a little bit. And then my wife would look at me and say, what's wrong? She said uh, again. And I said, yeah, babe, go ahead. So I do. I, like I said, I chase world terrorists for a So I know how to play them. So she'll go somewhere and I'll do a couple maneuvers that we call it. Um, we call it slip techniques. So I'll do a couple slip techniques on them, and then I'll come back. You'll see the earpiece and all that, and I'll tap on the ear. i say, you follow me? you be like, no, nah, I'll be like, you are, dog. I said, I see your radio. I know where every camera is. Stop following me. I'm not stealing anything. And I pull my creds out because I got retirement creds, and they go, oh, I'm sorry. Dude, I still get – I get followed today. I was part of, I was part of the New Jersey uh, profiling case back in the 90s. While I was working, they would stop me in Corvettes. In Mercedes, every time I rode, they would stop me for no reason and tell they see this is the bad part. I have credentials. Other brothers don't have that. So it ends there for me. Other brothers, it ends in death because they don't have those credentials. So I tell my sons, whenever you get stopped, do whatever you can do to come home. Don't start arguing. Don't do the stuff you see on YouTube. Well, my second, don't stop arguing. Stop arguing because Carl watched this and I don't know if you saw it. But I sent you a video earlier. There is a binary system of justice for white people mm -hmm. and then for black people. Because when we get stopped and we mouth off and argue, we don't come home. 
I sent you a video tonight where there's a white man that just got stopped in Ohio, got a gun, and they see he got a gun. He's arguing with him. He actually puts his hand on the gun, and they still argue with him. And then he gets in the car and he drives off. That would never happen with us. Yeah, yeah, never yeah. happen. Yeah, I saw, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. incredible. It's it's completely incredible. Um, I have to tell them I got four sons, and I, I yes. trust me, I'm I'm in fear, and and I say prayers every day. You know, with regards to this kind of stuff, because you're right. You know, everyone, you know, a lot of these kids in this other generation that's, that's coming up now, they, they got the Superman complex, right? It ain't going to be me. Nothing going to happen to me. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, also, uh, they're angry. They're enraged yes. at what they yes. see every day. They are enraged and rightfully so. I was going to say as they should be. And rightfully so, you know, um, that's interesting. So you were working on a pro profile case and they were profiling you at the same time. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It, now, it, now, it's now, 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 let me ask you this then. So what did you do during that time? Like, talk to me a little bit about that time. So during that time, I was working undercover drugs. So in mm -hmm. Philly, um, Georgia, to tell you, I work with Georgia. I work on special operations and special operations is just another high profile name for glorified surveillance. So any big case in the bureau, you name it, I worked on one of the highest um, cases that I worked on regarding special operations was the 1996 Olympic uh, bombing uh, or, or the Olympics down there with Rich. I was the first guy on Richard Jew, that movie that they made. And you saw them FBI agents sitting in the car. That was me and my team. So a lot of times, you know, I have high profile cars, undercover cars. And whenever I would go to Jersey, we worked all over the country. So Jersey, New York, Philly, uh, Miami, wherever. Every time I went up the highway, New Jersey State Police at that time had this reputation of profiling. Like they would stop people for having a uh, not even the, the air freshener because that's supposed to be a violation. But how about a string that you can't see at nighttime? You can't see a string at nighttime. But when they stopped you, they would say that. See, now, what, those what year is this? What year is this? Let's, let's just it's 1991, reference 92, 93, 94, early 90s. Because there was a movie that came out, too, during that time about New Jersey, New Jersey Drive. And there were a lot of, uh, you know, uh, thefts being happening, you know, happening during that time. But, yeah, that was the thoroughway, right? That was the pathway between D.C. and New York and the turnpike and all of that. That's that's where you were most likely going to get stopped. Yeah. Tell me about one of the incidents. Give me give me something that stands out in your mind. Talk to me about one that, so, that so stands out. One of, one of the craziest incidents about profiling, uh, this was 1997, and I had a, a powder blue high-profile Thunderbird with one of those T-bars on the back, and I had tinted windows, right? So I'm driving up to, we shoot Philadelphia, we shoot at Fort Dix up in Jersey, right? So I'm driving up to Fort Dix, and I don't disrespect anybody, so I'm I'm doing a speed limit. I might be doing a little bit faster. I see a state trooper coming on the highway, so I'm in the fast lane. So I see him. I kind of start throttle it down, do the speed limit, get in the middle lane. This guy gets behind me and follows me for about five to seven miles. I see him following me, and so all of a sudden I was like, man, I ain't, I don't want no smoke, man. I don't feel like playing with no. I'm trying to get the firearm so I can qualify. So I, he's behind me for about five months. So I said, you know what? Let me get in the right lane. Let this dude go by. As I get in the right lane, he goes by. And and, and there's an on-ramp coming. And there's a truck, Carl, a 18-wheeler coming on. So he now he can't see me. So he's he's looking for me. This dude initiates his lights from the front of me to stop me, right? 
when the truck goes by, he stops me. I'm sitting there waiting for him to come. And while I'm sitting there waiting for him to come, this junker goes by me about 100 miles per hour, right? So I'm just sitting there. So he walks up to the car nice and slow. And I, cause I want to, I'm going to play with you. I want to see what, what you're going to say. He said, do you know how fast you were going? I said, yes, sir, officer. I was doing the speed limit. You were following me for eight miles. I, I saw you behind me. Oh, you one of those smart ones. I said, oh, a smart, what do you mean a smart one? I said, you know what that's and I ain't even going to play no games. I reached for my creds and I handed my creds and I said, sir, I'm working right now. I'm heading to Fort Dix to firearms. So, you know, we're taught to never turn our creds over no matter who it is. So he's trying to take my creds and I'm like, no, you can't have my creds. I said, there it is right there. So he goes back to his car and I said, oh, oh, officer, I said, while you were stopping me, you didn't happen to see that junker car go 100 miles per hour right by us. You didn't worry about him, but you were worried about me. And he goes back to his car like they always do. They keep you there for a few minutes, comes back to the car and he says, have a nice day. Be on your way. So Carl, this dude, I mean, he peels off, peels off and I get back on the road. I'm just chilling. Yo, why three miles up the road? He pulled over that other car. Because he knew I was going to report him. Because he knew I was going to report him. And that's the kind of crap that I had to deal with every day for 22 and a half years. You're talking about uh, the, the the blue line. There's a whole bunch of that out there. Talk to me about that, though. How does that make, you know what I'm saying, how did you deal with that? How did you, how, you know, because a lot of people, here's what a lot of people, here's the misunderstanding, right? The misunderstanding is, and and I say misunderstanding because there are some black law enforcement officers various departments, whether it's, you know, FBI, police, what have you. Some of those guys, and I've talked to some of them, who have experienced these things and the blue line, you know, kind of, I don't want to say it changed them because, you know, sometimes you are the way you are before you get there. But that must have been difficult is, is, is where I'm going with this, right? It must have been difficult to being of service and, and trying to do your job but also having to deal with these type of things. How did you deal with that? How did you manage is what it, really what I'm trying to ask. So Carl, here's, here's the biggest problem. And I've heard of several of your guests, several of your guests have been, are my friends and in different, all different agencies. Here's the biggest problem, especially being a brother in law enforcement. And and uh, you talked to Matt Harris about this. He actually wrote a book about it and we've talked about it. Matt Harris and I were uh, college football teammates. He's from Philly right. as well. Right. So, Here's, here's the biggest problem. It's called the black and the blue. And the black and the blue is simply this. As especially federal law enforcement, we're not black enough for the brothers. That simply means as soon as we come home, oh, you a snitch, you a sellout, you whatever, whatever. But we're not blue enough for the badge either because all these positions, all those things that you talked about, me being the media coordinator in Philadelphia, me being, a, I was one of the top hostage negotiators in Philly, being in uh, a national recruitment. Well, guess what, Carl? I had to go five or six times to apply for those jobs and and get and get looked over five or six times. And and so you you you're never it takes it takes a resilient brother to keep moving up into these agencies. See, I never wanted to do. I never wanted to be in law enforcement, but because of my circumstances and my situation, I said, "You know what?" I said, let me back up. Let me tell you how I got in law enforcement. Yeah. So I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to go to the pros. I'm playing football and baseball in college at Dell State. Don't worry about it, Bison. But I'm playing at Dell State, and uh, I'm ninth in the nation in stolen bases. I'm going. I'm going for baseball. But I have my son at 19 years old, so I'm going to come home and take care of my responsibility. 
So I started working this penny any job in the bank. Dude, I could have I could have worked there for out of high school. But I get introduced to this guy. They're paying me this little bit of money. And then this guy comes six months later. They give him director of security. And because he's a retired Secret Service agent. And this guy sits down and he works with me for about six months. And he says, Frank, he said, have you ever considered the Secret Service? He said, because you're very articulate. And he said, you pay close attention to detail. I said, Bill, I said, my man, I said, Bill, let me come here, bro. Let me, let me, let me can I holler at you real quick? I said, Bill, where I'm from, Secret Service, what I know about Secret Service, the president walking down the street, somebody shoot him and y'all jump. I, I ain't finna do that. I don't I no. And he said, Frank, he said, listen, he said, if you get into federal law enforcement, it doesn't have to be Secret Service in 20 years, do 20 years of service. And by the time you're 50 years old, you can retire. Well, you know, and he said, you can make a lot. You can make good money. Dude, I didn't have all my kids then, but I perked up. I was like 50 years old, retired. Dude, I walked away from the FBI at 50, 50 years old with 22 and a half years service. And I didn't have to do anything else, but I'm crazy. I went right back into law enforcement and I'm a pastor as well. But that's how I got involved in law enforcement. Once, once I had that concept, the FBI came in and they tested. And Carl, listen. The test for the FBI is about three hours long, mm-hmm. right? And they're going to ask you all this kind of stuff. Everybody at that test, since they were a kid, wanted to be FBI agent. I couldn't care. I could care less. So I go in there about an hour. I took the test. I'm not checking nothing. I'm done. I get up and leave. People looking at me like, dude, are you crazy? So I get up and leave. A couple weeks later, I get, that's phase one. A couple weeks later, I get the call. Yo, you made it past phase one, phase two. Well, what's phase two? Phase two is where you sit down with a three-panel interview. Three people sit down in the interview, all white dudes at the time. And these dudes, they know, they want to know whatever. And they, they want to make sure that you know what's going on. Dude, I love news. I've been watching news all my life, so I bang that out in 20 minutes. So, Carl, this one white dude says, um, uh, Mr. Burton, uh, would you happen to say that you have a valid sense of humor? Dude, I'm an English major. I knew exactly what he said to me, but I didn't want to be presumptuous. So I said, excuse me, sir, can you repeat it? So the other dude says, a joke, man. Do you know a joke? Man, them dudes was on the floor about two hours. So I made it through phase two. And then so I went through phase three, Quantico or whatever. That's how I became an agent. That's how I became an agent. But here's here's the thing. The average time that it takes you to go through the process, the average person, white person, takes six months. It took me two years. You want to know why it took me two years? Because they kept doing crap to try to get me to fall out of the program. Stupid stuff like, uh, well, I see here where you had, you got, we're looking at your medical and you had a broken bone in your foot. Dude, I broke that bone when I was in the eighth grade. Man, I've been playing college football. I'm, I've been playing college football the whole time. Right, right, right. It took me two years to get in. But once I got in, I said, listen, I'm not trying to be the end all and be all. I'm just trying to make a difference. I'm just trying to make it that when I can go back to my communities, and I still do, I go to all five boroughs still. I go to Compton. I go to Liberty City in Miami, and I talk to kids because I never saw an FBI agent until I was 27 years old. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know who. I, I ain't never seen an FBI badge. So I right. do that now to make sure. You got to pay it forward, man. I think yes, I think you'd be surprised sometimes the things that you do, whether you do them on purpose or not, how that, you know, affects and, and you know, reverberates through the, through the community and, and could actually change someone's life. You know, um, you know, just by you being you is inspiring and, and, and can totally inspire the next, I don't want to say the next you, but the next person to make a difference, you know? 
That's interesting. That's totally interesting that, that it, took, it took two years and they just kept putting obstacle and obstacle in front of your way, right? First thing was something about a broken bone in my foot. The next thing was something about my level and my liver was too high. And so what so what happens is after you have to take a pre-fit test, right? Mm -hmm. But that only lasts for six months. So what happens is they keep trying to do stuff. They set you back that you either get disinterested or you get in trouble. So now you eliminate yourself or you just get fit. You get, dude, I had to take that pre-fit test three times. But you know what? By the third time I said, you know what? That's it. By the third time they said something, I had been divorced and they said something about my divorce decree. And I said, you know what? I said, this is it. I'm suing you guys. I said, because this is ridiculous. And then I got my letter the next month to go to Quantico. <laughs> they, took all of that. they took all of that for me to get to Quantico. Just just to get to Quantico. Yes, sir. Well, more power to you, brother. More power to you. Um, and I'm glad that you stuck it out. Let's talk about current events. Because, I mean, I, I wish I could talk to you for hours, you know, because I would delve into your whole situation and talk about, you know, which I want to I want to ask you about at some point. I'm going to ask you about one of your cases. Current events. Derek Chauvin. Incredible. Incredible. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, from a federal standpoint, Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was all hyped up about um, getting him convicted. OK, cool. We got that. You know, we know that if that didn't happen, I said a year ago, I'm doing some stuff in Delaware with law enforcement in charge of all, all the police agencies here. And I said a year ago, I said, we're at a tipping point right now. And not even right. this was way before this time. And it was and I was simply saying that we're having conversations that I've never seen before because of the, the, the young people's ability to be open and transparent. But also another generation of of of, of a majority of folks who are technically willing to listen. Right. So even with this uh, Emmanuel Acho, with these difficult conversations with a black man. That just opened up a lot of doors. So the whole thing with the with the Chauvin case is once we got the the verdict guilty, I, I wasn't satisfied there because now comes sentencing. So from right. sentencing, the guidelines are, are are vast and wide. So this dude can get 40, 50 years or he could get seven. And right. and I've been I've, I've been a product of that in some of my cases where you have people dead to rights that are not black and brown and they get off for two years and. And whatever, when they can tell me about one of those cases that stand out. OK, so I give you one. Two thousand seven mm -hmm. Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania was being built in Philadelphia. Chop, they call it. And while they were building it, the 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 the, the steel labor union or whatever is one. Well, they had a they had a, a, a minority program for up, upwardly mobile people. And so this one young black guy was in it and this older black, older white guy who was getting ready to retire. He didn't like the fact that they had this program. So he thought it'd be funny to hang a noose in this guy's locker. So this is 2007. He hangs a noose in this guy's locker. I get called to go investigate it. I go down there. I see the noose. I investigate. I interview several people. Long story short, this guy, I, I go and I approach him and I question him. He confesses to hanging the noose. I have the noose. He tells me that after he hung the noose, got in the elevator with the black guy, showed him the noose on his phone, and then he went home. I go to his house, Carl, in Northeast Philadelphia, all white. And I got years in now, dude. I go to his house and I bang on the door. Bang, 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 bang. FBI, Special Agent Frank Burton, his wife opens up the door. I'm there with a white female. Opens up the door, sees me, and slams the door on my face. Because I don't belong in their neighborhood, 
right? So I sit out in car and, and, and I wait for this guy. The guy comes home. We arrest him. I take him down there. You got a black special agent. You got a black United States attorney. And this judge, you want to talk about, so this judge is arguing with me on a stand about a noose is not what I think that it is. That whole Bubba Wallace thing, I'm telling them about uh, Emmett Till and I'm telling them about lynchings and I'm going through the whole history for the jury. You know what the judge said? The judge at the end where he's supposed to be in part, he shouldn't say anything. He says to me, well, when I was a kid, we used to play cowboys and Indians with ropes. What color was so the rope what is not what you think what it color, is. What color was the judge? White judge. So this guy, after confessing, after I, me having the noose, after me begging this young black dude, I'm scared to death. Dude, this is a locked, solid case. He, he got acquitted. Dude got acquitted of all charges. 68-year-old white man. And you want to talk about justice? That's why I wasn't excited about what well, was going to happen. Well, there's a difference between justice and accountability. Right? Come on, man. So let, Come on. Let, let's, let's just understand that. This is it's this. I, I can't call this justice at all. You know what I mean? Because one, on the one hand, some people would say, and it depends on how you look at it, something of this nature had to happen, right? right. For something else to happen, you know, but it wasn't this thing that was happening. See, that's where people are missing the point, right? The George Floyd situation was just the same as, and, and I'm not diminishing it. So, you know, anyone listening, please forgive, you know, if it sounds like I'm diminishing it, no. The George Floyd situation is a situation that's been happening uh, throughout time. It's been happening over and over. It's been happening for a while. The thing that happened was the pandemic. Yeah. That's the thing. See, that's what people, you understand what I'm saying? That's the yeah. thing that made everyone pay attention, stop and watch and see what we've been saying all along. Yes. That's the thing. Because the bittersweet, it's not bittersweet, but it's just he didn't have to die for that. And none of the people that have already uh, paid with their lives shouldn't have had to die for the changes that that hopefully are coming now um, to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Far too many. Far too many. Let me say this, Carl, because I've heard I've heard a lot of your guests talk about this and kind of allude to it. But let me just shine a light on it. Because so. When we talk about law enforcement in this nation, right, in the 1700s to start, the first law enforcement group was initiated to catch runaway slaves. So what's that? It was initiated on control, 1700s. Mm -hmm. 1800, right where you are, up in New York, Ellis Island, the first paid law enforcement agency was utilized to control control where the people were going, the immigrants. So now you have a narrative of law enforcement built on capture and control. <clears throat> and guess what? That narrative has, has never changed. Right. We got to change the narrative. And so what happens is when you talk about George Floyd and the pandemic, well, I already told you about my, my situation and my incidents. It, it, it has never changed. It has always been. But I'll tell you this. This is the other thing for the la and if people are paying attention for the last Four years under 45, the Department of Justice has been missing. You had a you had a you had a attorney general said that systemic racism didn't exist. He was freaking out of his mind. And then you had an FBI director that said something crazy. Now we so now we got it back, at least in and with this hearing, at least we have the confidence to know that we have some parity and some validity. So we have some hope. 
But it's, we got a long way to go, bro. What are your thoughts on the latest? Uh, with, with the, I mean, because here's the crazy stuff, right? The day of the Chauvin trial and the, and the verdict, what happens on right. the day? Yeah. Yeah. You get that shit, that, that uh, lady shooting a kid. Yeah. Now, you're trained. How, how many years? She, she had 25 years. Twenty and a half years. Yeah. I'm I mean, thirty years in law enforcement now. So so I just want to know from your opinion, black, white, let's let's leave racism out of it. How about that? Yes. Let's leave color out of it. You're a training officer. You're training. You're trained. Is this I, I just talk to me. Just explain something to me and explain how is this real? Like it could it have been a mistake? Could it have been a mistake? Let's start there. No, Carl, listen, you heard what I said about the narrative, right? So the narrative is not changed. And what's happening is you have white officers patrolling in our areas who are scared to death. And so their first instinct is eliminate the threat with uh, deadly force. So here's the thing with the taser. The taser, and I've heard it talked about on your show already. The taser goes on your less dominant side, right? But here's, I heard you talk about this to the to the last guy last week. But the taser's face backwards. So you know it's not a gun. You know it's not a gun. And most departments, carry tasers with different colors. You talked about the weight. It's totally different. When you go to your dominant hand, you know that's your gun, man. You talked about the weight. You know that's your gun. Listen, we should not have officers out there who are afraid. And this is what I'm pushing for in Delaware for reform is we need to have people. See, here's the problem. Even in federal law enforcement, we can be randomly drug tested at any time. We can be randomly uh, uh, polygraphed at any time. But Carl, why is it that the only time that you get a, a, a MMPI, which is a psychological evaluation, is when you come on? You should have those all the time, man. You should have ran- you should have random MMPI tests. And especially if you've been in a violent incident, it shouldn't should be one time. And, and it should be ran by an outside department. Absolutely, it should. Absolutely. It should be ran by an outside department, totally separate. Yes, sir. Highest- department um so you spoke on it what does police reform look like i mean what does it mean you know what i mean like i i asked this question but and people have their own opinion of what reform means so i just want to know for you what, what does that look like can i paint can i paint a clear picture so you can understand I, i'll give you i'll give you an example next door right next door to you so from 1991 to 2013 i work in the philly division so a lot of that work is in camden and that time from 1991 to probably about 2005, citizens of Camden hate hated police. And federal, man, you a federal eight, man, you better get up out of here. I worked a lot in Camden. And I could work in Camden because I knew how to talk to people. And you talk about de-escalation, I could do that. But here, here's what it look, here's what reform looks like. That I keep saying, I'm gonna say it one more time. The narrative has to change, but you gotta have somebody big enough to change it. So in 2013. I'm working with this guy named Scott Thompson. This guy is, I'm telling you, they come out with this 21st century report on policing. This guy is the guy that they go to. Why? Because he was bold enough to say, you know what? I'm going to fire everybody in this whole department, including myself. And what that means is, Carl, I'm firing all the higher ups, all the ranking, all these high dudes that have this mindset of capturing control. And then I'm going to, I'm going to bring people in. Who who have the ideal mindset, not as cops being uh, 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 warriors, but guardians. 
Once you can go and say, Carl, hold on, man, can I talk to you about it? De-escalation. I was a negotiator for 14 years, man. I know how to de-escalate something. Sometimes it's just talking to somebody. Sometimes it's how you approach somebody. I don't come up to you and say, Carl, get on the effing car, you piece of crap. Nah, man. Yo, Carl, what's going on, baby? Yo, son, what's going on? You, you, you straight? Let's have a conversation. So long story short, what does that look like? He fired everybody, Carl. In 2013, he rehired different people, and it takes that. time. It takes that. time. Mm-hmm. It didn't take. It, it took 2018, 2019, and you saw data of accusations against officers, uh, shootings, murders. Everything went down because now cops were talking to people. I wasn't out there trying to be Billy Bad Balls. You know what I mean? I was out there. Yo, could, could we talk? Because that's what I had to do as a negotiator. People jumping off of bridges. People trying to kill other people. I got to be able to talk to you so I can save other people's lives. And I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it starts internally. Uh, it starts with the vetting process. It starts with, with having outside uh, departments handle things that have nothing to do. Like if, if you, like you said, if it's a mental health issue, then you have to have those professionals dealing with those situations because right. they are trained and they know how to deal with those situations. You have yeah. to have you have to have somebody in charge big enough to be able to make those decisions to, to see because it's that ideology, man. If even in, in this thing that I'm doing right now in, in Delaware, everybody talks about policy, 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 policy. We can have all the policy in the world, Carl. But I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you what Trump's policy culture trumps policy. Culture eats policy for breakfast. We could have all this stuff written on the paper and let's do this. But if I'm scared. If I'm out there and I'm scared, guess what? I'm gonna do, if you talk about the thin blue line, and this is the way we always do. You roll up on the street and you throw everybody against. You can't do that's culture, man. That's culture. The first day on my job, Carl, I was working with a dude on the task force, a Philly cop, sixty year old white dude, man. We was like the odd couple. I'm the young hip hop dude with the earring. You know what I mean? He a young old dude smoking cigars, red as a beat. Yo, we go down to one of the worst drug areas in Philly, in North Philly. This dude, we run down the street. There's a whole bunch of the brothers on the, on the corner. This dude skirts his car up on the sidewalk. Everybody get on the wall. I said, yo, man, you're going to get me fired, son. We can't do this. Right. But that was their culture. That's what they did. And we, we got to have somebody big enough to say, guess what? This got to change, man. Yeah. And that's what Scott Scott changed everything. So do you think do you think they're with okay, so just to quickly run down, right, the current events that are happening. I wanna know if you think that changes are coming or do you see changes? Because the former Brooklyn Center police officer, uh uh Kimberly Porter, she was charged with second degree manslaughter in the Dante Wright case. Yeah, you know, the three men in the Ahmad Aubrey killing were in, you know, have have been indicted. Uh the, what is going to be the George Floyd effect? Do you think that there's going to be significant change now or that there's going to be more uh, accountability because it doesn't seem as if they think, it, you know, and when I say they, I'm talking about, you know, the fact that some of these things have happened during, you know, like, like the thing, you know, like it's still going on. Right. So my point is, do they not fear this thing coming down the pike? Do they not see it? Or is it because there's this inherent immunity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is that the thing that needs to go away for accountability or, you know, so, what do you so think is going to happen? So here's the thing. You just talked about qualified immunity and that's a big hot button. Just like everybody was talking about defunding the police. No, we don't need to defund the police. We just need to do it differently. 
Qualified immunity, people get that twisted. Qualified immunity don't mean that the cops can do anything that they want to do and get away with it. Qualified immunity is is set uh, in place. I'll give you a perfect example. In 1994, I'm working a bank robber and, you know, we don't go out unless we have information. I have all the information on this cat. I know where he lives. I got a team of six people sitting out on him. And one thing that I do know the background is I know this guy's a runner. So if he smells police, he's running no matter what he does. So I tell my team this. I get this one white guy who want to be Billy Hero, Joe Hero, get all close to the guy. He comes out and he see he can cop, look like a cop. This guy gets in his car and he jets. Well, this guy start chasing him. He goes over this bridge near the west side of Philadelphia and he goes, the guy running, he goes airborne. When he comes down, he runs into a late, a black older lady on the sidewalk going shopping and kills her. Well, guess what? They sue our guy. Because now that's that's what you're going to do. Well, qualified immunity saved him because he didn't he didn't make that guy go up in the air. But see, but people don't understand. It goes back to what I said again about this culture. You, you can't protect these bad cops. As a civil rights coordinator, I was the guy who 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 investigated the cops. I put a lot of cops in jail because if you're bad, you're bad. But Carl, it doesn't change. Until we, what I said before, until we do what Scott says, get all those guys with that mentality out of there. Here's the other thing. Legally, legally, we got a shot because, like I said before, and I've already explained it, the Department of Justice is back because the mindset is different. Before, it was like, yo, y'all do whatever y'all want to do. I'm with y'all. I got y'all. And that's crazy. And that's crazy. Well, I I mean, this also just came down the pike. The Department of Homeland Security is looking within their own ranks. And I think a couple of other agencies are following suit for white supremacists. They're looking to clean house. So I mean, hope it will supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, right? Supposedly. Hey, Carl, hey, Carl, Every, hey, everybody has to look like they're on board. Hey Carl, you talking about Listen, a white supremacist in their ranks? How about the, 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 the attorney general? That's who he was. That's what they were. How about the president? I, I understand. This is this is what I'm saying. It's like, hey, let's police ourselves. Let's, uh, on, as Puffy said, put on the shiny suit. I don't want to put on, on the shiny suit. Put on the shiny suit. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, everybody's, uh, you know, and, and they gotta look. They gotta make it look and, and seem as if it's basically like, let me sound the alarm and let you guys know what's about to happen, so you can figure out how to deal with it and hide and run and yes, you yes, know, it's, it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, you know, and I've often said that when I've seen the news, when I watch the news, and I'm like, you know, which obviously is controlled media. But when I'm watching it, I'm like, was it really smart to just say everything? Is that the smartest thing to do? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is, that, is that how we live now? Where we, it's like the villain, on, 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 you know, talking about his <laughs> his escape plan. Hmm, this yeah, is the part yeah. I'm you <laughs> and you tell everything. See, that's that's one of the things that really ticked me off seriously about early on in the in, in the uh, prior administration is when the 45 started talking about what we do security wise overseas man you put a lot of people's lives in danger and that 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 was the first thing that pissed me off as openly as he was talking about it which he had no real knowledge about it but you don't get up there you're playing a game with people's lives do do we do this for a living we know how to do these different things, but he's just opening everybody up and we do X, Y, Z. And when you start talking about our security secrets, man, you put a lot of people's lives in danger. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I wonder what 
what. I wonder what. Look, some stuff makes sense, but other stuff, I'm like, okay, if Caitlyn Jenner becomes governor, I'm 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 done. I'm done. I'm just done. Like I don't yes, like yes. some like like come on. Like I said, some stuff makes sense. Others, I'm just like, well, who who are we? What what are we? You know, you know where where are we going? I'm about to move. I'm I'm leaving. About to move. I'm setting up a little hut on the beach in Australia. Man, it's it's you know it, it's so much to talk about. Like I said, it's so much to get into this whole because it's a lot happening right now. And it's a lot happening all at once. I mean, whether it's the vaccine, the pandemic, whether it's you know, like I said, there's a lot of indictments coming down now. And I think you know it, it'll be interesting, is what I'm saying. Let's watch. All I'm saying is right now we got to be vigilant and we got to keep our knee on their necks now. Yes. We got to keep our knee on their necks and we have to hold everybody accountable, whether it's the people that are, you know, the other officers who are actually standing by allowing another officer to do something that they know is out of line, but out of fear of the blue wall, everybody has to be held accountable. Everybody has to be held accountable, even if even if that lady made a mistake, even if she really made a mistake, mm-hmm. she has to own up to that. A life was lost. A life was taken. Everyone who has done stuff like that has to own up. They have to- There's legislation that we're trying to put in place for what you just said. If I'm an officer and I see somebody abuse another officer abusing someone else, um, there's there's legislation being um, formed right now that. I won't be in fear of retaliation. I won't be in fear of being ostracized, but know that I did the right thing to save a life. And and before you, you basically just like those guys, why didn't you do anything? Because he was the senior officer. And because he told, because one guy asked him, he said, but, should, should we turn him over? Because that's what you should do when you has a positional right, on the side, right? Turn him on the oh, side, right? And he said, nah, he said, nah, we, we're good. And he kept his knee right there on his neck. But they were afraid because they either he outranked them. Yeah, but it's common sense. It's yeah, common but that's sense. what I'm saying. But that's why I'm saying that's why we're pushing legislation because there's other abuse stuff that goes on too. Where right, there have well, been other I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I'm with you 100 of the way. Uh, I'm definitely down to help the cause and push whatever initiative that that provokes the change that's necessary. Before we get out of here, talk to me about your book. So from FBI agent to an apostle, was just talking about, see, every law enforcement guy wants to write a book. I'm an English major. I like to write anyway. But I said, you know what? It was something a little bit different. As an FBI agent, I wasn't supposed to be a pastor because they won't let you have any other um, profession because you can't have any other job, any money because your time belongs to the bureau. Plus, they pay you very well. So my thing was when I got called by God, Carl, I just said, you know what? I probably was I was 12, 13 years in. So I said, God, you know what? If this is what you want me to do, if they call if they call me for it, I'll give it up because I love you that much. And, and don't get me wrong, dude. I was a hellraiser before, you know, before I got called. But transition happened. And so the Bible says the thing that is that I feared the most has come upon me. I got the call in 2002. Louis Free was the director. Called me down to headquarters. And I was like, oh, God, I, I was joking, man. I, I don't I don't want to give this up. I only got eight years. And so I go down there and Louis Free says, I understand that you're a, a pastor. And he said, yeah, he said, but not just a pastor on another ministry. You started a church and you found and you're apostle. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you know, you can't have another source of income or another job. I said, I've not taken a, a dime out of anything. And I've been preaching for a while. Carl, I've, I've done executive protection for some I'm not even going to get in the name right now for some big pastors. 
I've not taken a dime. My first seven years of pastoring, I never took a dime from anybody. So what Louis Free said, he said, listen, Louis Free was the director of the FBI at that time. So Louis Free says, well, we just, 2007, he said, we just started a faith-based initiative and who better to lead it up than you? I want you to be part of my team. So our first assignment was back then it wasn't called uh, manpower. It was called for men only, T.D. Jakes. So we went down, we started working with him. And we went all over the country the whole nine, man. And that's how I got in with a lot of those guys that I'm friends with to this day. But uh, so the book is about the book is about that. But the book is also when I say spiritual sniper or sniper in real life, but a spiritual sniper to be able to uh, see different spirits on people and to be able to call them out. So it's just a it's just a little yeah. play on words there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I picked up on that because uh, that was one of my first questions. I was like, wait a minute. So he a pastor and he a sniper. I, I preach all over the country, man. Like I said, I've been to Compton. I've been to New York or whatever. I'm a pastor that packs. So right. guess what? Well, I'm, I'm going to have a gun based on my experience. And you are always going to have a, you're going to find a gun on me somewhere all the time. So people are like, you take your gun in the pulpit. Heck yeah. Cause I don't know who's going to show up in my church. And, and we have a, we have a security team and we've, they've done newspaper articles on it that are armed and I, and I trained them. And we've actually gone down to Bishop T.D. Jakes to train with his guys. So again, it's an art. And here's the thing, uh, um, Carl, here's, here's the problem for a lot of people, older people in church. Guess what they're going to say? Long as I got King Jesus, I don't need nobody else. But guess what? That criminal that's coming in there ain't wearing about your Jesus. Just like Dylan Roof, when he came in there, he wasn't worrying about nobody. See, if somebody was able to be able to stop that threat, you come in our church if you want to, you're going to get embarrassed. <laughs> you're going to get straight up embarrassed. So, so that's important to me. And I actually go around the country teaching churches how to set up security teams, not to Oh, to be, oh man, y'all shoot this. Nah, I just want you to be attentive and I want you to be aware that this could happen. I've gone to, I've gone to churches, Carl. I've gone to churches and done the training with the people, the older people that say, and I do scenarios. I have them shook at the end of the, oh yeah, we do need a security team. We need one. I mean, look, look, like you said, you know, that's been a, a common thread and kind of the thing, right? Where it's like the changing of the guard. Like you said, a lot of the old heads and a lot of those people of a certain age, you know, they were raised a certain way and they yeah. they think a certain way. And even though they came through the same thing that we're going through now. Yes, sir. Which which I have to say, I kind of appreciate, you know, it, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, this new generation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a double-edged sword. But I have to say, their tolerance for BS... Kind of like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of like <laughs> I kind of like no it, you know. No talent at all. I, I kind of like it, you know, yeah. because that's what really ha has been necessary for quite some time. But, Carl, can I say this real quick? Because that's a great point. Uh, and I got them. I got them right in my family. Those young kids, I love, love their tolerance for no BS, but you got to balance that with wisdom. I said it's a double-edged sword. That's, yeah, exactly. I, I, you got to balance, you gotta it's a balance it with wisdom. Sword. Right. So sometimes wisdom has to come in and speak because they don't have experience exactly. and we have experience. So that's why I work well with the young people to try to get a balance there. So I, I, I agree with you. And like, like I said, you know, it's it's it, there has to be that balance. You're absolutely right. Yes, there has to be that balance. But I definitely think 
that that's the only way we're going to initiate change is if that's right. consistently. And, and now is the moment. We have to carpe diem. We have to seize the moment. And this is the time to hold everyone, all of our Congress people, all of our officials, all of our local uh, uh, state and federal uh, accountable. What are your final thoughts before we get up out of here today? My final thoughts are this. First of all, Carl, I'd like to tell you thank you uh, for having me on. And I, I appreciate you. And I understand that you're going through some difficulty with your family. I want to dedicate this show as I speak to you. You're talking about a conundrum. During the weekends, I'm watching my boys play football. They're number five in the nation. They're going to Alabama. They're doing great things. But on the other end of that, my mom is dying as I speak to you. She's in hospice. So when you counsel on Sunday, I'm dealing with that right now. And like like at literally at any moment, she could pass. But I wanted to take the opportunity because I could feel, I don't know what you're going through, but I could feel something. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and do this because I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do this. So I want to dedicate this show to my mother, Florence Burton, who would be 80 years old in August, who's on hospice and could pass at any minute. Brother, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I too, said the same thing. You know, I, I am going through something with my sister right now. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, you know, I wanted to keep my word, even though I was not in the, you know, in the space. Right. It's not in the space at all. Or, or, you know, but my spirit said, no, this is this is important. This is important. Uh, what we're doing is important. Yes, sir. You know. And uh, so I appreciate that. And uh, I also dedicate it to your mother as well as my sister as well, man. And I'm glad that you took the time out to uh, um, be here today. And so let's let's just do this right now. Heavenly Father, they said when two or more gathered, there you, there should you be also. Um, right now, we, we, we praise you. We thank you. We lift you up and we lift up. Uh, brother uh, Frank's mother, as well as my sister right now, because we know that you are a healer. We know that you are a way maker and we know that whatever your will is, it will be done. And right now, all I ask is that you place peace of mind upon Brother Frank and his family. I ask that you place peace of mind upon my family and that you go and be there with them, because I know that you are there with them. We don't, I don't care what doctors have this assignment. I know that you are in charge of this assignment. Yes, God. And in God's name, everything will be all right. Yes, God. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Carl, let me tell you something, man. You talk about spiritual sniper. First of all, thank you, because guess what? Everybody wouldn't do what you just did. And because of your acumen and who you are and people watch, that could throw a lot of different people are. But just like I said with Scott Thompson, we need people in high places who are not afraid. And what you just did, number one, is huge because personally, it's huge to me just that you took the time out to do it. Also, being a pastor, that's huge to me. But, man, just you had the boldness to go ahead and do it because guess what? God going to get the glory. Whether my mom dies tonight, tomorrow, whatever, he's still going to get the glory. And I'm still going to be shouting. But I'm always going to remember this day yeah. that you took the time out to be bold and not afraid. And God is going to honor you for that. And I'm going to tell you, uh, listen, I ain't trying to get deep or nothing like this, but you done, you done pulled on my heartstrings. So I'm going, I'm, I'm going to let the pastor side come out real quick. Please I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to decree on you right now this, as you deal with your sister you're going through, you know, the old church used to say from cover from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, from the top of your head, I'm going to give you Nahum, the prophet Nahum, small prophet in the, in the Old Testament, one verse nine. 
And he said this, and I'll leave it with you. He said, no affliction shall come upon me a second time. So I'm telling you right now, whatever you're going through, whatever your family's going through, and I'm not talking about physical because that's going to happen, but I'm talking about the, 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 the mental and the emotional. When you talked about the peace that passes all understanding, that what you were talking about to guard your heart and mind. God said, be anxious for nothing. But in all things, let your supplications and all your prayers be known to God, and he will give you that peace that passes all understanding. So Nahum 1, 9 to the top of the head, and the soles of your feet is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. And that simply says this, Carl, the enemy has taken a lot from us, man. And the Bible says in that Proverbs chapter 6, 30, it says, if the thief be found, Carl, he's going to have to pay you sevenfold. And I'm talking about your career and I'm talking about your family and I'm talking about your health and I'm talking about everybody that's talked about you. And oh, look at Carl. Now he's selling Carl's and all. Guess what? You still are the man. You hear me? And God is great. Do some stuff that's going to be powerful in, in you because you took the time out tonight to glorify him. Watch what I tell you. Dude, let's stay in touch. I don't know how we're going to do it. I need to be in touch. Make, I will make sure that we are. I will make sure yeah. that we are. And watch what God going to do. Watch what God Absolutely. does. Absolutely, my brother. Love you, you, brother, man. I love you for your strength. Love you back, man. Love you back. Yes, Thank sir. you for joining me. Yes, sir. Everybody, Frank Burton Jr. Thank you. The Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. 